If you've never been to the BC Forest Discovery Center um, up on the north side of Duncan, I highly recommend it, especially if you've got kids. Um, last summer, we've been a couple of times, but um, one time Nicole went without me because I was preparing a sermon. Anyway, that's lack of preparation on my part. But in the summers when we, when we go up to Gordon Bay um, to go camping, we have tried to make it back there and go, and, and it's a lot of fun. Um, there's, it, first off, it's just huge. A lot of acreage, a lot of everything. Um, you can spend time um, hiking around in there. There's, there's trails to hike, but there's also like a, a steam locomotive that goes around, which is really cool. Um, and there's an entire, they basically re- restored all the buildings and everything of kind of like an entire like logging town in like the late 1800s, early 1900s kind of style of town. And uh, there's all kinds of trucks and equipment that you can look at and climb on and do all kinds of stuff with. It's a lot of fun. My kids had fun too. Um, yeah, but one of the things that, that really was kind of neat that, that really boggled our mind a little bit just on, on not just an educational level but on a spiritual level was this huge cross-section of a Douglas fir that they have mapped out at being roughly 1,300 years old. And I have a picture of it right here. Okay, and I asked the kids how old they thought the tree was at first and I got some answers in kind of like the couple hundred years range, which is, you know, good. But then we started kind of plotting the dates that they had on the tree rings, right? Past my life, past my grandparents' lives, past the Civil War, past the Revolutionary Wars, past the European settlement of North America, even back past the initial Viking landings, back through Genghis Khan, back through the Ming Dynasty, like foundings of like British, French, Spanish Empire, all these things that we know and take for granted. And it was just amazing to me that one tree had been alive that long in history, right? And then later in the day, we go outside and we're, and we're wandering around and Clay and I are wandering around and notice that there's a patch of seedlings and there's a, there's a, there's a marker there and they're Douglas fir seedlings, you know, they're right. And I go, Clay, one of these is going to grow into one of those. And watching, watching him kind of try and wrap his mind around that and then me kind of going like, well, yes, of course it's going to be that because I'm an adult and of course I know this. And then I start trying to wrap my mind around that. I could come back when I'm 80, when I'm 90 if God gives me that. And it will not be anywhere near the maturity that it is destined for. And my kids could come back. And my grandkids could come back. And my great-grandkids could come back. And it will still not be anywhere near the maturity that God has placed inside of it. And I found myself getting kind of dumbfounded. At just the majesty and the amazement of, 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 how, of how incredible that is. And just remembering that, that when we plant trees, we often do so in the knowledge that we won't live to see them grow to their fullness. And there are a lot of other things in this world that are planted in us, through us, in spite of us, <laughs> that we will not live to see grow to their fullness, and yet we're a part of them anyway. And, and Jesus is with his disciples 
And he begins to look back at this time when the seedlings of the kingdom of heaven were planted. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob received it in its infancy. Moses and Joshua and the judges tended to it. Prophets and kings were charged with keeping Israel ready for the time when the kingdom was going to come in its fullness. And through wars and famine and exile and return and waxing and waning hearts, the kingdom was always growing. It was always doing its thing, says Jesus. And faithful people had studied and written and spoken and longed for it. And yet, they lived and died before it ever arrived. And now Jesus stands by the shores of the lake and reminds the disciples, who haven't done any of that stuff yet, that they are like my kid, standing by the great firs and cedars planted hundreds, even thousands of years ago. Only partly understanding what was happening and how it was all going to work out, but seeing it in its fullness. And the disciples, they asked Jesus this question, why, why do you speak to the people in parables? Why do you do that, Jesus? And this word parable, in its, in its simplest definition, it means a comparison. Jesus sets two things beside one another to compare and contrast them to create understanding. The character of the kingdom of heaven, which is unknown to you, might be compared to these things which are known to you, says Jesus. And he uses, he uses simple, accessible images that, that, that people would be familiar with. Farmer planting crops in the field, fishermen hauling in nets, merchants looking for good deals. But see, here's the thing. There's more than simple comparison going on here. There's more than just a sermon illustration happening. Jesus is engaging in the prophetic practice of the mashal. And here's what the mashal is. It is a story that acts like a riddle to tease out the imagination and bring insight through the unfamiliar, even jarring pieces of a familiar story. Because there are some things that really, really don't match up in these stories. And, and some of this kind of eludes us because of time and distance. I realize this, okay? We read through the sower parable. A lot of times we nod our head and say, okay, I think I get this. There's four different dirts. Be the good dirt. Got it. And we miss the fact that a person who knows something about farming in Jesus' age would be shocked at the terrible practices of this farmer. Who wastes a quarter of your seed grain by throwing it out on a road? This is your seed grain. This is the stuff that you need to... You aren't farming because it's a hobby. This is the stuff you need to live. You waste a quarter of this thing, you may not get enough return in order to be able to have it next year and your family starves. This is not somebody just being careless. This is somebody being like, like what are you doing? Okay? Who, who doesn't come back and do some weeding and care of the field that they've planted in? Who does that? Who just throws the seed out there and is like, well, see you in August. You know, like, who does that? And yet it's, it's kind of just left for the seed to just kind of do its thing. And how on earth do you get 50 or 100 times your seed as a return? I mean, how do you even get 10? It's, it's a good year of farming would give you like 2 to 3 
times your investment. Enough to see it again, enough to pay your taxes, enough to have enough to eat, and hopefully enough to be able to trade for the other things that you want. Okay? You have a bumper crop year. You maybe get four times. Maybe. These things do not add up. The facts don't match the story. And so on the one hand, it's really, really simple, and it's easy to understand. On the other hand, when you start thinking about it, there's some things that really just don't line up, and you start to find yourself getting wrapped around this and going, what is Jesus doing? They force a person to either dismiss them as absurdity or novelty, or to try and tenaciously search for some kind of worthy meaning in it. And that is exactly what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus' answer as to why he speaks in parables may even kind of seem like a riddle in and of itself. He says to the disciples, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them, he says. And, and we talked about this in class this morning. I automatically don't like that. We're like, okay, so there's elitism now in, in the kingdom? Ugh. There's, there's, there's to you, but not to them. What am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with that? Well, you've got to understand where, where he's coming out of when he says this. Because the last two chapters that we've been reading in, in Matthew in 11 and 12 have been a case study in people who should know better missing the point about Jesus. The, secret, the knowledge of the secrets have, of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you and not to them, not because I'm choosing to give it to you and not to them, but because we sent you all out there and most people went, what is this? It doesn't make sense. And so Jesus tells stories about, well, yeah, that's kind of how it's going to work for you. That's how it's working for me as I'm bringing the kingdom. That's how it's going to work for you as you bring the kingdom. Scholars who know the law like the back of their hands do not receive the Messiah in their midst. They dismiss Jesus as a charlatan at best or an agent of the adversary at worst. The crowds want another miracle. The scholars want another sign. And nobody's willing to dig into the, to the reality of the kingdom of, the hev of, of heaven. They're not willing to take the time because it doesn't add up to them. And even those who are most familiar with him seem to be working against him. Jesus' entire tellings of the parables in Matthew 13 is sandwiched between two stories. The story of his family showing up to basically try to correct him. Maybe even say, hey, this was great, but like you need to come home now because you're kind of, you know, getting a little, this is getting a little crazy. Time to go home. That's on one end. And Jesus kind of going, okay, who's really my family here? Who's, who's really with me? It's the people who hear the word and obey it, right? Those are the, the disciples. You're my true family, okay? So you've got that on one end, and then on the other end, you've got this lackluster reception in, in, from the hometown crowd in Nazareth where it basically says Jesus couldn't do a whole lot of miracles there. Not, not because like he wasn't sparking that day, but because there was such a lack of faith due to familiarity with Jesus. They're like, isn't this Joseph's boy? We think. Maybe not. You know, it's kind of the old, how could anything good come from Nazareth, right? How could anything good come from, we, we know him. You know, he used to make chairs. Okay. Now, now he's healing blind people. 
Well, I mean, that's great. I'm glad you found a hobby. But, I mean, Messiah? Really? People think they already know how the story's supposed to go, and familiarity is breeding a lack of receptivity to the kingdom of God. And they've become tuned out or turned off by the story that's actually unfolding. And so Jesus starts to tell more stories to widen the gap between the disciple and the onlooker, between the one who's blessed to have ears that hear and those who have gotten to the point where they can hardly hear anything at all because they already know how the music's supposed to go. Because the reality is that while the kingdom of heaven is for everyone, not everyone will be for the kingdom of heaven. That is what Jesus is saying. The elitism is not that the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them in terms of like, I only chose you and I didn't choose everybody else. It's that, hey, the kingdom of heaven will be for everyone, but there's not a lot of people that are going to actually be for the kingdom of heaven the way that the kingdom of heaven is. There may be a kingdom of heaven that you want. There may be a kingdom of heaven that you'd like, but that doesn't mean that it's the kingdom of heaven that is. If you're not careful, you're going to miss it. Like I said, this, this section of scripture is hard for me to take because I want everyone to embrace Jesus as king, right? I want people to be that good soil that produces, despite trial and temptation, that good seed, that good fish. But it's not going to be that way, says Jesus. Matthew quotes both Isaiah and Psalm 78 talking about parables. And both, are, both have this, this, this idea of speaking things that are hidden and trying to bring them to light. But both of them are really about the long history of Israel missing the point with God all the way back into the wilderness in Sinai and, and kind of saying Israel has done this because humanity has done this. Israel has a long history of missing the point because humanity has a long history of missing the point. There's nothing new happening here, says Jesus. Many people are going to dismiss the truth about who I am and they're going to miss God's reality and rule because of calloused hearts that bring murky vision and clogged up ears. That's going to be the reality that we live in as disciples. That's a reality that still exists today. I don't like it. I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. Not so with you, though, Jesus says. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you. And I think it's important that we really, really hear that in, that in Jesus' words. We are not know-it-alls about the kingdom. We've merely woken up to the reality of the depth and the mystery of what God is really doing in the universe and in our hearts. We are aware of it, even if it's beyond our understanding. Just like I am aware that there are trees that have been around for 1,300 years, even though I cannot even begin to comprehend or witness the majesty of what it looks like for that to go from seedling to huge, massive tree, you know, that is bigger around than me, right? Even if it's beyond our understanding, even if we don't see it in its fullness yet, we've become aware of it. 
But more than just becoming aware of it or trying to understand it, the point is, is we are committed to the fact that it is reality. Those are the ears that hear. Those are the eyes that see. Not the person who can explain everything about the kingdom of heaven, but the person who says, I am convicted that it is reality. And it's a reality worth giving everything for in return. Jesus bookends his entire discourse with three parables that reveal that reality. The good soil isn't good because it's lucky and and it never has to deal with any rocks or any weeds, okay? Instead, it's the heart of a person who not only hears the truth of Jesus, but is willing to understand that it is life and who clings to that life with everything that they are. They survive and they produce the kingdom life within them and yield a harvest to God that then produces more life in the kingdom. Like we said, it's, it's not that the good soil is good soil because it doesn't have rocks or that it doesn't have weeds. Because if the rocks are trials, trials are universal. Everybody's got them. If the weeds are temptations, then temptation is universal. Everybody's got them. The good soil is not the good soil because it's lucky and never had to deal with any of those things. I mean, if you and I think that the only good Christians are the Christians that haven't really been through the ringer or haven't ever really been tempted, we haven't really looked at Jesus' life now, have we? No, the good soil is the good soil because despite trial, despite temptation, a commitment is made to produce a life in keeping with the kingdom. Conviction turns to action. Likewise, There's a treasure that's buried in a field. There's a pearl in the back room of a shop. Those things are only attainable if we're not only willing to search them out or dig them up, but then turn around and when we realize the value that's there, we consciously give up everything else that we have claim to in order to possess that. Even our own notion of how this life should work in order to possess the reality of the kingdom of heaven. You have to give up the one in order to possess the other, says Jesus. And those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and non-calloused hearts will see the value in the kingdom. They will give it up, whatever it is that they've laid claim to instead, in order to possess that. And those who don't may know a lot about how it works and how it does it. They may be able to fathom all mystery and wisdom and knowledge, but if I do not have love... The deep-seated, not just a flitting desire, not just an emotional response, but the deep-seated conviction of love for God that causes me to abandon all in pursuit of him. I have nothing. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you, Jesus says, but what will you do with them? Will you abandon your familiarity in order to embrace my mystery, asks Jesus. And this is a critical jump that we have to make because the kingdom doesn't work in a way that you and I naturally understand. Like a child standing beneath a Douglas fir holding a pine cone, I can be told all about the growth cycle. I can be told about the intricacies of DNA within that small vessel and still be confused as to how you get all that tree in that thing.
The kingdom is supposed to surprise us. It has to surprise us. Says Jesus, otherwise it's more likely that we've missed it than we've obtained it. He uses these images of, of, of the tiny mustard seed and the yeast, and those things are perfect. They are, they are purposefully exaggerated by Jesus to show us just how mysteriously expansive the kingdom really is. His mustard bush, the way that he describes it, is more like an oak tree. You know, wildly overgrown and vibrant, with, you know, like birds making nests in it everywhere, okay? Wildly overgrown idea. On purpose. The yeast lump. You measure out how much flour that lady's using? It's like 50 pounds of flour. Okay? She's not baking for her family for dinner. Okay? We're talking like big wedding feast baking. Okay? And Jesus talks about like somehow she takes like a pinch of yeast and goes like in there. And somehow all that little yeast in the 50 pounds of dough goes and just works through the whole thing. That doesn't make any sense. Neither does the way the kingdom of heaven works. But it works. But it works. See, somehow these tiny little imperceptible fungi that you know, Jesus is using as an example here are full of life and transformation, imperceptibly changing the nature and shaping this massive amount of dough. Somehow this little itty-bitty seed's got an oak tree in it. Okay? full of transformation, full of life, and you can't, you can't see what's going on when you put it in the ground, but it's doing something. You can't see what it's going to be when the first little shoot comes up, but it's doing something. And you can't know how many birds are going to make their nests in it when it's fully grown, but it's doing something. That's the way the kingdom of heaven works. Do you accept it or do you not accept it? That's the real point. Are you willing to be surprised? I'll be real with you. I had a really terrible ministry day one day this week. Okay? I mean, maybe it was just like post-retreat letdown. I'll allow for that. But I felt like everything I was doing was just off. Calls kept coming in, news I did not want to hear, and I just got this feeling like, what is the point of all of this today? You know, I got reminded that one of my teachers told me, never quit ministry on a day that ends with why. Solid advice. Solid advice. You know, and I'm, 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 I got this feeling like, what's the point? What good am I doing? It doesn't even feel like any of this matters, which is kind of funny since I'm already tuned into this passage. And I've got it in my head, like letting it percolate and working it out in a sermon. And as I'm thinking that, God is going, um, excuse me. Hi, can I have a moment, please? Would you mind applying this sermon to your thinking for a moment? Thank you. How are, you gonna, how are you able to make judgments about what good the ministry I am calling you to is, Travis? How are you able to make judgments about that, really? How are you able to make judgments about what the effect or the outcome is going to be? You say, I've got no clue most days. Yes, that's very good advice. You should take that. That's okay. You can live in that one. I'll give you that one, says God. But, but, you also don't have the vision I have. But what you do have is me. And I am telling you that this is the full life, even though you aren't going to understand that fullness sometimes. Maybe most times. 
am working out my salvation in you. I am working out my salvation around you. So here is the next step. Walk in it. What do I say to that, right? there's, There's nothing to say except, okay, all right, I'll do it. Because I believe that this is life. You know, the disciples later, you know, Jesus will, you know, they'll, they'll get hit with another hard one and a lot of people are going to leave and Jesus is going to be like, okay, so are you guys planning on walking too? And Peter's going to be like, I, where else am I supposed to go? I don't know how to handle this truth that you've just dropped on me better than anybody else, but I don't know, where else do I go? You have life. I don't have anywhere else to go. I'll go with you. Even if I don't understand what's going on, I'll go with you. You know, I had to repent of my thinking because that is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. The one who has ears to hear, use them. What he means is simply this. This is not going to be obvious, and this may not be the story that you're used to. Maybe not even the story that you want So you're really going to have to work on it. You're going to have to think it through. You're going to have to be receptive to the reality that I am bringing into your life. You can trust my way even when it is unfamiliar to your understanding. And yet this is where I think we tend to draw away from God, not toward him. When we don't understand God, I think our response is more often to question rather than trust him with our questions. It doesn't mean we can't question. It's It's that we get skeptical of God rather than skeptical of ourselves. And, and we try and imprint our way rather than being receptive to the revealing of his way. Why doesn't God do something, we ask? Tragedy strikes, trial blindsides us, difficulty weighs us down, and we say, what's going on? When are you going to fix this? And that's not a new question. And I mean, it's certainly not an inappropriate one, I don't think, in the right spirit. If you read through the Psalms, like, you can realize pretty quickly that over half of them are built on asking God these kinds of questions. What is going on? Where are you? How long will we have to endure this? Those are not inappropriate questions to ask God. It's not the questions that get us into trouble. It's the spirit behind the questions. Jesus is addressing folks that want to see that tree seedling of the kingdom sprout into its fruition, like right now. Right, right now. They want God to finish this already, to come and make things right once and for all in the world around. And the problem is the picture of what that looks like to them is like the fires of political revolution. The fires of, of like, you know, overturning and making Israel this great nation again. You know, like, it's, it's those ideas that are, that are fueling their desire. It's completely focused on how is God is going to make it right on all those other people over there. The Romans, the Samaritans, the sympathizers, the sinners, those folks who aren't good Jews like us. They seem to have forgotten the fact that more of these prophecies talk about the day of the Lord coming on Israel first. And then the nations. And you can almost see Jesus going like, do you really, really want that? Do you, do you really want that? He tells parables about the wheat and the weeds and the nets full of fish. Are you, do you really understand what you're asking for when you want God to come and finish this and make it all good? Jesus asks, can you even tell the difference between the wheat and the weeds in your own life, much less who is a wheat or a weed around you? 
Are you ready for God to make a decision on which one you are right now? (laughs) That's a completely different question, isn't it? The patience of God is a function of his compassion for us, for you and me. Not his inactivity, not his impotency. It's a function of his compassion. I mean, there's no doubt that there is a reckoning that is coming, but a function of this passage is not to stroke the ego of the self-assured disciple that judgment is coming for those other folks. It's to remind us that we're consistently called to this transforming discipleship of Jesus, that there is no point where we can stop and we can kick our feet up and be like, that's far enough, that's good, I'm righteous enough, done. It doesn't work that way in the kingdom of heaven. Instead, we get challenged by the reality that God is like actively delaying the finality of his decision out of his kindness for us. Not as a cop-out. And that's, that's a blessing for us, but boy, that is also a blessing for all of those people around you who have no knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven yet. Yet. He's holding back so that we can get to him. That's how important it is to him. That's how important you are to the kingdom of heaven. Do you realize that? I imagine that as Jesus kind of rolled out story after story after story, the disciples probably found themselves kind of swimming in a myriad of different reactions. Honored because they realized that the reality of God that people had been waiting ages and ages to see was becoming a reality in front of them. More amazing, God himself was inviting them to be participants in it. How crazy is that? Take your place alongside the Moses and the Elijahs of our history. Wow. But with that honor and with that excitement, I bet there was a good amount of confusion and a good amount of apprehension too. I mean, how how are they, simple fishermen and workers, able to understand or participate in such a big and such a mysterious thing? Those are the same things that I swim in when I think about being a part of the kingdom of heaven. I'm honored, but I feel really inadequate. I feel like I'm out of my league. I feel like I'm out of step. If you've got ears, use them, says Jesus. What you were longing for and praying for is really coming true, but it's going to happen in ways that may not always seem right then they may feel like they are beyond you. To be a disciple is to follow, and that's what God invites us to do in these stories about the kingdom. Jesus says, stick with me, listen to me, wrestle with me, struggle with me, but most of all, be open to what I'm doing. Be receptive and responsive to me day by day by day. Come back for more. Don't let familiarity keep me from being new to you. Don't let comfort keep me from moving and changing you. There are many around you who are going to reject this, and you may even be found in a mixed bag of good and rotten disciples in the church. Keep moving further into me. Don't let trial or temptation choke the kingdom life out of you. Let me continue to tease your imagination and stoke the fires of your heart about what the abundant life looks like, says Jesus to soften you up, to unclog your ears, to bring clarity to your eyes that you may be blessed. I believe that is a challenge well worth receiving 
and well worth up giving, well worth giving up everything for. Amen? Amen. And so let's respond in worship and let's respond at the table. Let's come to our God with a response of praise and a response of submission, a response of giving over, a response of saying, I believe, have your way in me.